Hello, friends. Welcome back to my podcast, or welcome to you, first timers. That's a lot of Bob's. I know. How'd you How'd you feel about that? That's a little something from Bob's Burgers, one of our favorite TV shows, and not just because my name's Bob. It's actually pretty funny. I think you non-Bobs will even enjoy it. My name is Bob Makala, and this is my podcast. We're going to try to have a theme this month. The theme is inspiration. I'm going to talk to people who inspire me, stories that inspire me for the month, once a, once a week here for the month of April, and our first guest in April is Annie Moore. Annie Moore, we met at Thanksgiving dinner in 2015. My wife and I were invited to have dinner at her, my wife Molly. We were invited to her Aunt Jenna's house for dinner in the Lower East Side, and that evening, that afternoon, we met uh, Annie, Annie Moore. Annie Moore went to high school with Jenna way back when, I think in the 60s maybe, yeah. So over the course of the afternoon and evening, Annie tells me she is a writer and her late husband has written a few books that she's always wanted to get published. I told her about this little project of mine, this new company I was starting called Boptimistic Books, and um, we decided to possibly work together. Well, here it is, April 2017, and we just released, through Boptimistic Books, a novel written by Andy's late husband, Andy, Andrew John Colomeco, better known as Andy. And you're going to hear all about Andy's amazing story here. We got into it, but there's a lot more to tell here. But just to get a little taste of Andy, let me read something from the back cover. The, the name of the book is Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice. It's a novel, and you're going to hear what it's kind of what it's all about through uh, through my conversation with Andy. But let me read read what it says about Andy here on the back cover. Andy Colomanco never finished high school, yet graduated with honors from Temple University. Despite being told he had learning disabilities while growing up, Andy was later accepted into Harvard's PhD program for physics, which he turned down to teach high school science in Vermont. In 1984, he finished Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice, which he'd later submit to the Brodigan Library for unpublished manuscripts. In 2003, Andy died of leukemia. This is his first published novel. So we got some, some quotes in the back of the book here from a few people. One, uh, one former book editor at the Christian Science Monitor said this book is brilliantly ahead of its time. Todd Lockwood of the, of the uh, Brodigan Library, he wrote to us after reading the book, and he said, Andy, Andrew Kolomanko's Einstein doesn't throw dice. Grab me at the first paragraph and pull me right inside the mind of Peter Simmons, the book's flawed yet brilliant protagonist. I felt weirdly right at home. There's a bit of Peter Simmons in all of us, I think. Kolomanko takes us on a wild ride as we experience life through the eyes of Peter Simmons, an excommunicated physicist turned street urchin. Still one of my favorite reads after 25 years. One more quote I want to read you, and then we'll get into my conversation with Annie. These are the, these are the quotes in the back of the book. 
And this last quote is from a, uh, an author and a physics professor at, the, at Gettysburg University who I reached out to. Sent him the manuscript, and he wrote back, and here's what he wrote. His name is Stephen Gimble, by the way, and he's the author of Einstein, His Space and Times. And here's what he wrote. Wonderful work. The writing of a book like this about someone with extraordinary intellectual gifts requires an author who's, who is similarly endowed, lest the book come off flat and cheesy. But this is a thoughtful, strange, yet touchingly humane tale. Aristotle famously said that there was never a genius without a tincture of madness. But Andrew Kolomenko's wonderful novel allows us entrance into the mind of a genius with a tenderness and humanity rarely seen. So, you want to read it now? You want to read this book? Well, you should. And if you don't, you might want to hear this conversation with uh, Andy's wife. That might entice you a little more. I'm willing to bet it does. So here's my chat with Andy Moore, wife of Andy Kolomenko, author of Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice. book actually has already made it to the radio wave um, way back in 19... He, he, Andy met Todd Lockwood uh, and, and like I think it was 1988 and um, or 1989 it would have been 1989 and Todd somehow got a chapter of this book read on national public radio in Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So one of the, um, and we heard it, I guess, probably the way we heard it was Todd had a recording studio at the time. Todd, by the way, was the, the man that first recorded the band Fish. Um, he, Todd, is an entrepreneur or he's very artistic and he does a lot of different art type projects in his life. The Broadway Library being just one of them. He's the first person to have to have recorded fish. Yes. So yeah, Todd had a recording studio that was state of the art in Burlington, Vermont, and the band Fish was completely unknown and Todd was the first person to record them. Yeah. And um, so he, he'd be he'd be a good person to talk to for a podcast. He'd be a great episode. Oh, a- absolutely, no question about it. And um, yeah, Todd has got a lot of different artistic angles to him. You know, performing and and helping other people. You know, perform. It's, he he gets involved. He apparently is a fabulous photographer and has recently had some photography shows. But um, there was a man on the board of directors of his Brodigan Library that he established, and um, that man read the chapter in Andy's book near the beginning called Waitress, and that was the one that got read on the air in at, on Wyoming Public Radio. It's, and it sounded fabulous. And um, it's kind of the first time where I really understood that this book has a whole, has another life to it when it is read aloud. 
Yeah, for sure. And they, we could do an audio. We can do an audio book of this thing. We should absolutely do an audio book for sure. Um, yeah, and there was another um, connection with Andy and the book and Todd Lockwood and the Brodigan Library to the media, and that was that around 1989 or 1990, the British Broadcasting Service um, sent, actually paid for two reporters to fly to Burlington, Vermont, to interview Todd Lockwood to do a radio BBC program about the Brodigan Library. And, um, it went, you know, when the Brodigan first started in 1989, it got huge press. Before you continue, how about telling um, our listeners what the Brodigan Library is? Oh, okay, fine. That's right. I will. Andy's book was actually first published by Todd Lockwood in the Brodigan Library. And the Brodigan Library was a place for unpublished books. And Todd Lockwood explains a little of this in the foreword to Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice that you, Bob, have just published under Bob's Mystic Books. And... Um, so how the Brodigan Library came about was that Todd Lockwood had a brother who died tragically in a in an accident in Burlington, Vermont. Um, it, his brother was a woodworker, and a, a a a piece of lumber fell on him and killed him. Ooh. And oh. Yeah, yeah. It was really and when that happened to Todd's brother. Todd made a decision. This is all the story, you know, the backstory that a lot of people actually don't know, but he told this to Andy and me later that um, he wanted to honor his brother in some fashion. His brother had created a number of comic books that were never um, published, really. You know, the brother just did it for fun, but he was talented and they were good. And... um, so one thing and another, Todd's brother's comic book was the first thing that Todd placed on the shelf in this library for unpublished works. And at the same time, that I, I don't know if the brother's death really got him thinking about the Brodigan Library. There are probably two things that came together at the same time. But Todd, as he says in the foreword to Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice, um, he got the idea for the Brodigan Library from his love of the novel that Richard Brodigan had written in the 1970s titled The Abortion. And in that novel, which I have read a few times myself, Brodigan describes a fictional library that is a home for unpublished books. So that was Richard Brodigan was the first person that came up with this idea. And Todd, being the creative person that he is, decided he wanted to make that library a living reality. And he did it. He was a huge fan of Brodigan, too. Not just the story, but he, and he, he, was, a, he was a fan, and he was kind of, wasn't he 
kind of uh, moved after Brodigan ended a committed suicide. And Brodigan, also Brodigan was um, my first semester, my first quarter at UCLA, my freshman year. Um, I took English 85, and one of the books on the syllabus was uh, a Brodigan book. I had never heard of Brodigan, and we read um, Trout Fishing yeah. in America. Yeah, so that was my introduction uh, to Brodigan. Andy and Todd and I are a little older than you, and um, when we all went to college in the late 60s and early 70s, we got presented with the same thing you're talking about, only it was pre-computer, pre-cell phone era, and Richard Brodigan's Trout Fishing in America was an, like an underground favorite, and it went like fire across the United States. It was passed from hand-to-hand in colleges and universities, and we all knew who Richard Brodigan was in by 1969, and um, that's where Todd first you know, kind of got to know him, and um, and this idea came together in reality. As Todd explains in his foreword, um, he was watching the movie Field of Dreams, and that whole concept of build it and they will come. You know, and he got and you know he got this shaft of enlightenment or something watching that movie, and he thought. Okay, if I if I do this Brodigan Library, the manuscript will come. And something that Todd doesn't mention in his foreword is when the Brodigan got done and he and Andy had met each other and Todd put Andy's book, Einstein Doesn't Throw Dice, in the Brodigan Library, Andy and I started volunteering to be part-time librarians over there. Todd got all these people to volunteer to be librarians, and we would actually go sit in the little beautiful space that Todd was renting. And one of the things that would happen, and if Todd were in on this podcast right now, I'm sure he would light up with me talking about this, because it's just this unique little thing that happened, which is you'd be all alone in there with these... I think he had... I don't know, 250 books at one point, these unpublished books on the shelf. And they were all bound identically. Todd would bind them. and um, They were all bound identically? Yeah. Todd, what the deal was that he, Todd sent out, and again, I have to remind you, this is pre-internet. <laughs> Todd got this advertised by radio and in newspapers that if you sent a manuscript to this address in Burlington, Vermont, the owner of the Brodigan Library would bind it for you. I think you sent $10 with your manuscript, and Todd promised to bind it very attractively, and he did. It was, I think, Nagahide <laughs> that he used, you know, fake leather. And so each book was the same size and bound with this brown leather-like plastic, and um, on the spine of the book would be the title of the book. And, um, you know, what Todd was giving all these people was incredibly beautiful. It was he was giving them publication. You know, he was saying, you are an author, and we are 
proud to have you in this library. It was such an amazing thing. And the, the magic that I'm trying to explain is that when you sat there as a librarian, and people would come, and you, you weren't allowed to check out the books. You had to sit in the space and read the book there, and people would come and sit mm-hmm. and read the books. Um, and Todd had, it was a beautiful old New England building that he rented, and it had windows that looked out on a garden, and the sun would come into the room, and, you know, it was really nice. So there was an answering machine. That was the technology we had. And all day, all day when you would sit there as a librarian, this thing would click on, and you would hear Todd's voice. Somebody from all over the world was calling the phone number to find out how to get their book placed in this library. And you would hear the recording of Todd's voice saying, you know, welcome to the Brodigan Library. We're so glad you called. Um, if you will send $10 to this address, we will be happy to accept your book. Uh, and we will bind it for you, you know. Mm-hmm. The thing that was incredible is that machine probably went off every 15 minutes. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I keep wanting to remind Todd about that. And once, sometime, I'm sure, soon, you and Todd and I will be together promoting this book. And we'll have a lot of memories about those days. Because um, So what happened with the Brodigan is, you know, Todd got it all set up. And Todd found out um, Brodigan's daughter's name and address, and he wrote to her. And um, she was very pleased to support him, and she became one of the board members of the Brodigan Library, and she gave to the Brodigan Library all these mementos of Richard Brodigan, her father. So we had a beautiful glass case in the Brodigan Library, that had his eyeglasses that were like John Lennon wire-framed round eyeglasses. And um, He kind of looked like Kurt Vonnegut, didn't he? he? He looked a lot like Kurt Vonnegut, you're right. Yeah. yeah. And that, that book called The Abortion, the cover photograph in the book is a man and a woman, and Richard Brodigan is the man in the picture. And he does, you're right, he looks like Kurt Vonnegut wearing John Lennon's glasses. <laughs> he looks like me. And um, so the daughter, whose name is escaping me right now, it's a very beautiful name, and I, I can't quite think of it. Iantha or Isen? Or... I think it's like Iantha Brodigan. Iantha, yeah. yeah. Um, so the other things that, objects that she donated were... Um, some first editions, some letters with Richard Brodigan's signature and the pen that he wrote with it. So we had that beautiful little thing going on there. And the other thing Todd would do is every, um, I think it might have been four times a year, people, the, the authors of the book, were invited to come to a potluck sharing at the library on a Saturday and, you know, about 25 authors would show up, and some of them would drive 3,000 miles to get there. Jeez. You know, yeah, and they would show up, and we would share food, and people would read from their books, or they would ask other people to read their books, and it was magic and wonderful. 
And, um, yeah, so the way that Andy met Todd is that Andy's mother was reading the New York Times one day or the Wall Street Journal, and she saw right on the cover this article about the Brodigan Library. That's what happened. It's it's got on the cover of the New York Times and um, the the, uh, Times of London and the Wall Street Journal, they all ran articles on this thing that Todd had created. And frankly, what Todd and Andy and I all thought, we really believed that something was going to happen where the major publishing houses would ask for these books and the authors were going to get published. But you know what? It never happened. And, none of the uh, book, none of, none of the books from the library ever ever went I, anywhere. They never have, and in fact, this book of Andy's in the state that you have brought it to, Bob, by publishing it this spring, it, this book might be going farther than any of those other books have gone. I, you know, Todd could tell us more about that, but um, here's an example of what happened. This is what's interesting. It's Somehow the world was was really reacting to this. I think that the publishing powers that be, the old, you know, what what is it? There's like seven major publishing houses in the world, or something. I think there's five. There are five now. They're like the big. They're like the accounting firms. They just keep consolidating. The Broadway Library threatened them. It's the best, like you know, interpretation I'm going to put on it. Um, they really shut down their creative ideas. And here's an example of that. Todd was, as you can imagine from what I've described to you, he was pretty excited. Like this idea of it was really taking off. And people were noticing. And the BBC sent a team to interview him, you know, and do a radio show. Um, so Todd started writing letters to big deal people, asking them to be on the board of the Brodigan Library. He already had Neantha, if I'm pronouncing her name right, Brodigan, and he had a couple of um, professors at the University of Vermont. And uh, so one of the people that Todd wrote was the man that draws the uh, Doonesbury comic. Gary Trudeau? Uh, Gary Trudeau. Like, and it's a, it was a great idea, you know, I can see why Todd did that. What happened is Gary Trudeau wrote him a letter that ended up getting framed and hung on the wall of the Broadway Library because <laughs> it was so infamous. And in the letter, declining to be a board member of the Broadway Library or declining to even consider it, Gary Trudeau said to Todd, who on earth would want to read an unpublished book? That's what he said. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, finally the thing ran its course for Todd. I think he supported it for like five or seven years. And then finally he just decided the time had come for him to stop doing that. And he was able to find a home for the Brodingen Library at the University of 
Washington, as it says in the foreword, it's um, the home of the library now is the Clark County Historical Museum, curated by Dr. John S. Barber of the Creative Media and Digital Cultural Program at Washington State University, Vancouver. So the whole library and the case with Richard Brodigan's, you know, glasses and pen, but also the Gary Trudeau framed letter hangs there, <laughs> which I love. Excellent. It made the trip. Perfect. And um, so does this does, so yeah. so does this mean that um, um, Andy's book needs to get yanked now that it's a, it's a published book? Is he no longer admitted in, oh. into the club? Uh, I, I I really doubt that very much. Um, good, good, good. <laughs> and also, Andy's book has the uh, also unique. Um, place in the library because it's the only book that Todd decided to keep as it was sent by Andy. He didn't rebind it in the brown plastic. Um, Andy had published this book on a dot matrix printer, the first one that Macintosh came up with in the, you know, 1984. Um, and he ba Andy he printed up like 20 copies of the book, and Andy did original drawings for the book. He has drawings in that original book, which you can find in the Brodigan Library. Of um, The cover has a drawing of Einstein on it, and there's a couple drawings in the book, like A Dancing Bear is another one I remember. It's really nice. Um, I believe that Andy did those drawings using the art technology of 1984. I think there was like this stylus pen that you could use like a mouse that could create drawings that you could print out and that's what he did. And wow. then he had it, yeah, and then he had it bound, you know that, that spiral plastic that people bind cookbooks with? Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> that's the binding on the book. And that was the form that he sent to Todd before he ever even met Todd and Todd put it on the shelf like that in that form so that's sitting in there and actually my my personal opinion it's um, it's an object that's really valuable actually you know my own personal copy of that of Andy's Andy's original handwritten work and that early copy of Einstein and so on um, all got stolen from me a number of oh. years ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah, so they're kind of, they're either at a dump or they're floating in somebody's attic or God knows where they are right now. Um, and in many ways, Bob, I, you know, my gratitude to you is just enormous because it's been a struggle in my personal life to just keep body and soul together and to hang on to this manuscript has been really hard for me. <laughs> and, um, did you have a, did you have a printed out copy? Did you have it on a, on a disc? What, what, what I, kind yeah, of... I had it. Andy had put it on those original, you remember the early Macintosh had these square discs. Remember? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So those, I, I still have those original square discs, so that's kind of cool. Of course, you can't um, find a computer that'll take those square yeah, discs, but... Yeah, and then by the time that Andy died at 51, he had everything in digital form, you know, on a Dell computer, which right after he died, I put all of that on a uh, flash drive. Oh. And that's... How, and I carried that flash drive... I have moved every four to six months for 13 years, which is frightening, but that's just what happened to me. And I have carried that flash drive. You're lucky that flash drive didn't go bad because those things, I've had flash drives that get corrupted and they just, you're, they're done. You can't yeah. get their info off them. Yeah, and I, what I also would do is every computer I would own, I would transfer everything onto that computer. So I wasn't dependent on that flash drive and so on. And, um, yeah, it's been quite a journey just even preserving this. And um, Andy gave his original book to his family members, and some of my friends own it. And um, I, one of the copies that I had when Andy died, I sent to a... Uh, a sheikh in Saudi Arabia who had been our employer. We we started a school for him in 1995, and he really, really loved Andy. And so over there in Saudi Arabia, he owns a copy of the book. Wow, international, <laughs> really, Middle East. He had an international, interesting life. So let me tell you about this British broadcasting team that came. Oh, first, I want to tell you how Andy met Todd, right? Okay. So Andy's mother wrote him a letter one day um, in 1989 when the Brodigan first opened. And I think that because the Brodigan was opened in Vermont and Andy and I lived there, I think coincidentally with his mother's letter, we had heard about it that very week. But I just remember her, his mother writing him and saying, Andy, this... This place is right near you in, in Vermont, and they're on the cover of the New York Times today, and call this man and give him your book, <laughs> you know? So that's sort of what happened, and um, as Todd says when he, in the foreword, he says the minute he, or well, I guess it's printed on the back of the book now, it says, um, Andy's Einstein doesn't throw dice, grabbed me at the first paragraph and pulled me right inside, and it's true. Todd was so enthusiastic about this book. And right away, he started saying to Andy, this is the finest book that I've received. And you can imagine what that would do to a young author, you know. It was just wonderful. A young high school uh, science teacher. A science teacher who never... Andy, at that point, had had a one poem published in Nimrod magazine. Have you ever heard of Nimrod magazine? It was Yeah, I think it I was have. a pretty famous poetry magazine. I guess it doesn't exist anymore. And they did publish one of his poems and that probably gave him the the gumption to think, okay, I've had one thing published, I can try to write a book, you know? Um, and then the other the board members of the Brodigan Library also really let him know how much they loved the book. And 
one of the board members was a physicist professor at the University of Vermont in Burlington. So that meant a lot to Andy that that person really loved his book. Oh, we gotta send we gotta send this book to whoever is the top dog of the physics department at, at U, uh, University of Vermont. We absolutely must, and I need to ask Todd if that physics professor still lives in Burlington too. I've forgotten his name right now, but he's a lovely guy, and um, yeah. So when Andy became such a favorite at the Brodigan. It was natural for Todd then when the BBC sent the reporters over to make the radio program, he asked Andy to be kind of front and center with so Todd somewhere has a recording of that BBC program in his archive. And it features a lot of Andy because one thing that happened is that the team of British interviewers didn't prepare Andy for this, but they popped, they they had a, a book of Brodigan's with them, and they said to Andy, would you start the radio program by reading the first chapter of Brodigan's book? And Andy and I both froze in place because he had a reading disability, Andy did. Oh. And he, I, the look on his face was, the, the biggest amount of fear and <laughs> trepidation. And I was afraid, too, but he did a beautiful job of it, as it turned out. He, he got um, through it. He got through it. And he had a beautiful reading voice. So there's this recording of Andy's voice somewhere in Todd's collection. We got to get, get that from Todd. He's got to find that for us. Yeah, we really need to get that. And it's... I used, that's another thing I used to own, which I don't think I have anymore, sadly. Um, but I'm sure that Todd has this. I have a feeling that Todd is, um, because of all these different artistic projects he's been involved in, I think he's really organized about preserving everything. And he, he always has a place of business is that separate from his house where all these things go on, you know, like a big warehouse or something he'll rent. Perfect. Well, we'll try, we'll track this thing down. Yeah. And also we could get, I'm sure he's, he's got the recording of the chapter on the waitress being read on NPR as well yeah. by, by that other person. Yeah. So these are nice little pieces of the history of this book. And you can see, like, there's, we had a lot of reason to believe, like, wow, this could get published, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, interestingly, in the BBC interview, the interviewers at one point said to Andy, so did you write this with the hope of being published? And Andy chose to answer them by going, oh, no, that really wasn't on my mind. I, but I knew that wasn't true at all. Why do you think he said that? I think it was a couple of things. Andy really tried to practice humility at all times of the day and night in his life. He was kind of like a secret Buddhist, too. He didn't talk about 
but he really tried to practice being very Buddhist in his attitude. So it wasn't his way to kind of promote himself. But I think also it was that artistic embarrassment. You know, if you're not discovered or your play isn't a hit or whatever, it's embarrassing to an artist, right? Um, well, I, it's funny you should mention that because I, I just wrote an email to a friend of mine um, this morning and and I was talking about how, I think I told you, I came up with this idea for a... Uh, web series. I wrote four half-hour scripts, and I'm I'm committed to making them. and And I wrote back to her. I, I had um, written her, asking her if she thought I should um, I should send the scripts to this mutual friend of ours who was a producer, and he's won an Oscar. and um, And she's like, "Well, I hate to be the cynic, but you know, I'm not sure that he was going to respond to." Uh, a story that's got so much optimism and uh, and my response was my response was like I'm at this this is I feel so good about this project and what I've done with it and the writing and just the concept that that I feel bulletproof um, against negative reaction to it because I and that's rare for me I'm you know it's easy to be susceptible to whatever negative opinions even if it's one out of a hundred but I feel so. I'm at the point now in my life, and 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 with this project in particular, where I, I don't, I can't. I I don't think it's gonna, you know, a hundred no's aren't gonna aren't gonna make me think any any differently of this thing because a I believe in it that much, and I've and I've already gotten positive feedback from other people. But even that, even still, I, I I believe in it so much that I'm. I'm not embarrassed by it, and if it never goes anywhere, I still I'd, I'll go to my grave feeling like it's it was uh, something I can be you know, proud of. Andy, I, I think he never had a moment when he didn't think this was really good, you know. Um, but he was very visibly shaken every time he got a rejection letter, and um, I think he he probably sent at least 15 to 20 um, attempts, you know, to get this book published. He sent them to all the big publishing houses. And he got all those standard letters that you, we've all seen, right, that say... And there's plenty, yeah, there's plenty of very super talented writers who, who've got a, yeah. you know, can wallpaper their, their houses with re- rejection letters. And the best example of that is... Is John uh, the guy that wrote Confederacy of Dunces? He got something close right. to thirty rejection letters, and that that novel is awesome. People love that, that novel. Thing. Is awesome, and I've always related to that story personally because you know it was his mother that sort of doggedly went around with his book to publishers after he died. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I've always felt a personal connection to that story myself. And, and got it to um, one guy. He got it to one professor, Walker Percy at LSU, I think it was, yeah. that believed in it. And, and, you know, the rest is history. So That's right. Um, and that's kind of been my mindset with starting Bobtimistic Books is that I feel like I, I have such uh, respect and um, empathy for people who have written something that they that they know is good and for whatever reason. It's a lot easier for the world to say no to your project than to say yes. It takes... 
you got yeah, you're putting right. you're putting your ass on the line and a lot in your jobs is to say yes to projects so it's easier to find reasons to say no than it is to say yes and even yeah. with something like this and it, it was always this strange every time those rejection letters would come at the same time we had these people at the Brodigan library just raving about his book and reading it on NPR Right? Um, so Andy just kept writing, which is really a wonderful part of the story. You know, this book was finished. He didn't, by the way, it's kind of interesting. In thinking about talking to you today, I was remembering that this book did not go through a lot of changes, really. Pretty much what you see is what he wrote down. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the book is bad, is very spare in that, as you know, there's there's not a lot of extra description, et cetera. And a lot of novels get to being spare because people cut back and cut back and cut back. But the way that this book is spare is the way that it was written. Yeah. Um, but, and when he got done with it, he didn't really fiddle with it over the years. He just wrote more books. And with each book that he wrote, he would send it to Todd, and it would get bound in the Bodigan Library. And Andy, after Einstein, he never tried to get anything published again, actually. Those other books, he never even sent them off, to my knowledge. Um, Wow. And you've read them all, obviously. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, 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 I've read them all. And um, I, I think that, frankly, Einstein is my favorite. But the other books, there are chapters that are my favorite, you know. As a whole, Einstein is probably my favorite, but I spent more, I've read Einstein so many times, and those other books, just the nature of the way our life went, I, I kind of feel horrible about this now, but I probably read each of them only once or, or twice. Um, so I personally am really looking forward to getting back into those books now and, um, you know, reading them again and getting them published, too. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me, how did you meet Andy? Oh, okay. So this is a good story. So let's see. Um, Andy and I met late in life, so to speak. I was 35 when we met, and he was 32. Uh, no, I actually, I think I was 36. Anyway, he was like four years younger than me. And he was 32 when we met. So he was 32 when he wrote Einstein. He wrote Einstein the year we met. And um, I had been married before, and Andy had been married before. And at that, so in 1983, Andy had moved to Vermont four years previous after getting divorced in Philadelphia. And he really moved to Vermont. So he moved in the late 70s to Vermont. And he moved there with the idea that he was going to be a poet and an artist. But and, and, and when he moved there, had he already turned down Harvard for the Ph.D. program in physics? I or did, think. Or did that happen after, did that happen after he get there, it, got there? It, I think it happened after he got to Vermont. 
So my understanding is that he went to Vermont and got to this little town in northern Vermont because a woman he knew from Philadelphia who was very wealthy because her people owned paper companies. Um, this person offered him a piece of land for no money. She said, you can homestead it. <laughs> and um, Andy moved into an old barn on this woman's property, and he had a girlfriend who had come up with him from Philadelphia. In fact, I think she's the person that knew the wealthy woman. And uh, they moved into this barn and were living like artists. And Andy's girlfriend was an artist. And Andy, um, probably around that time, well, what he did is he had a teaching degree and he went up to Craftsbury Academy and applied for a job. And they said to him, well, there are two job openings. One is a math teacher and one is a um, special education teacher. And Andy decided to take the math job, but it inspired him to go to the local college and get a master's degree in teaching disabled kids. Uh, you know, um, kids with reading disabilities. So he actually accomplished that. And then right around that time is when I think he just applied to Harvard to see what would happen, and he got accepted. And um, this is all before he met me. But I think his turning down the Harvard job or, you know, the Ph.D. program was probably very shortly before he met me, it was probably 1982, because he told me later, he said he was actually looking for someone to marry, which I think, in my experience, is not that common in young men, <laughs> in my experience. <laughs> um, and he came to the conclusion, among many things, that he wasn't going to meet that person sitting in a basement in Harvard. I often wonder if part of the reason he turned down the Ph.D. program at Harvard had something to do with his reading disability. In other words, you know, um, that disability was very troublesome to him. It, it was, it made life hard, you know, and... Um, yeah, and wasn't he undiagnosed growing up and they just thought he was, he was totally a slow? undiagnosed, right, and that is why he got so attracted to getting his master's degree in teaching kids with disabilities, right? He, yeah, it all fit together that way. So the way I got to Vermont was that I had finished law school in Los Angeles and had gotten divorced and really... Where'd you go, where'd you go to law school? I went to law school at Whittier College, which was where Nixon went to school. Oh, it was the Whittier College had recently acquired a law school in the Wiltshire District of Los Angeles. So that's where I went to law school. And um, when I got out, I was at sixes and sevens. About I didn't really want to live in Los Angeles. I 
didn't want to practice law in the atmosphere that I had seen in Los Angeles, which was very sexist and all about power and money, and it was, and everything was being driven by cocaine. It was a pretty sick scene, in my opinion. And this was in the seventies and late seventies in LA. It was early eighties. Yeah, I graduated from law school in seventy nine, and I got a clerk job with a lawyer who represented cocaine dealers in Hollywood. Hmm. And, you know, every time they would get caught at the border or one of their mules would get caught, we would represent them. And I looked around and I said, "This is really not what I had in mind," you know, and. I had a, a girlfriend who married a man who owned land in Vermont, and they had created, along with his brother, a place called the Center for Northern Studies in Northern Vermont. And Andy was somebody they knew, um, because they would have these um, evenings at the Center for Northern Studies where scholars would present programs about the Arctic, and Andy would drop in, and so they got to know him. And in 1983, I was really wanting to get out of Los Angeles, and this place sounded so magical to me. It just I felt like it was calling me. I, you know, I just wanted to go to the northern woods of Vermont and forget about Hollywood and cocaine and even the law, you know. And so I arrived in the summer of 1983, in June, in Vermont, and my friends thought I was coming to visit for a month. <laughs> I, I knew I, I didn't have enough money to, to do that. I, I could only go one way on the thing. <laughs> so I knew I was there to stay, and I knew they'd probably offer me a job, and that's what happened. So I got there in June, and August 4th is my birthday, and my friend gave a giant birthday party for me where she invited the entire town of Elmore and Walcott, Vermont, to my birthday party. Elmore and what? What was the Elmore, two towns? These two towns, one is called Elmore, Vermont, and the other one is called um, Walcott. And the Center for Northern Studies was in Walcott, and then... A few miles to the north is Craftsbury, where Andy was teaching high school. And um, this sounds maybe silly, but this is really true. The first time I ever laid eyes on Andy, he was walking to my birthday party holding a giant salad bowl. It was a potluck barbecue in a beautiful Vermont field with daisies and, you know, Mount Mansfield off in the distance. It was a perfect August day. And Andy had brought this giant wooden bowl of lettuce salad that he had raised in his garden. He was a big Oh, yes. How romantic. And honest to God, I really mean this. It was like there was this golden light all around him and these trumpets going off. I, I just looked at this vision of this person, and that is how I felt. I, I guess you would call it love at first sight. And I think he felt the same way about me because we sat on a big log in that field and talked to each other for my entire birthday party. Aww. And um, yeah, and I remember he was wearing boat shoes, which totally I'm a, I'm really big on sailing, 
And that that just like added to everything. When I looked and saw he was wearing boat shoes, I just thought, oh wow, this is great. <laughs> so what's really wild about this whole thing is that he had come to the party with this woman he was living with, who he had lived with for four years. The woman that he moved out there with? Yeah, yeah. And what I knew about the two of them is that I had already been introduced to this woman because my friend knew I was an artist and she had an art group. And so I, for like a month or six weeks, had already gone to a couple of her art group meetings. And she would tell, she had told this story about breaking up with Andy. So the story that she was promoting all around the neighborhood is that she broke up with him and that he didn't, he didn't want a relationship and he was a jerk and, um, she suspected that he was gay. This is, <laughs> this is the first I ever heard about Andy was this story, which was coming out of this woman. What turned out to be the truth a long time later is that um, he had really broken it off with her. And actually, the reason he broke it off with her is he had decided he didn't, he, she had two sons and he had helped to raise them for four years. And he had decided that he wanted to be a writer and that he had this book in his head. He wanted to write it, which was Einstein, as it turns out. And he for all the reasons that people have, he just decided that she was not the future he was looking for. And um, she was hurt by this, and so she was spreading the story that she had broken up with him because he was gay. So when I met him, even though he impressed me all over the place, I had the story in the back of my head that watch out for this guy because he's gay. <laughs> So how long did it take before he proved that he wasn't gay? You know what? It took all summer. He kept asking me out. And I would meet him in the most improbable places, like in a grocery store or crossing the street. And he would invite me to do these wonderful things. Like he would say, I'm going sailing today. Do you want to join me? Or he would say, you know, I'm going hiking. Do you want to join me? And I was so afraid that I was going to get involved with this gay man. <laughs> A gay man that didn't realize he was gay? <laughs> yeah, that I um, would come up with these excuses all the time. And I would say often, because I was a photographer at the time, that was my art that I was trying to get into, and I would say, well, I have a lot of work and I have to do in the dark room today. And he would say, you know, you really want to think about that because our summers are so short here. You know, you're going to have nine months of winter to be in the dark room. So this when I probably rejected him about eight times over the next two months. And but we would run into each other at parties and things and have a great time talking. I ended up going to Maine to do a promotion for the Center for Northern Studies at Bowdoin College. And when I was in Maine and I was driving back to Vermont it just hit me all of a sudden, like, 
you know what? This man, Andy, is not going to ask me out forever. There's going to come a time when he's going to meet somebody else. And all of a sudden, I got terrified. And so when I got back to Vermont, it's like a two-hour at least drive. It might be more. I've forgotten. I get back to my little cabin in Vermont, and I, as I walked in the door, the phone is ringing, and it's Andy. And I've been gone for about 10 days. So I pick up the phone, and he says, Hi, it's Andy. You know, what are you doing or something? And I said, Oh, I just got back from Vermont. I mean, from Maine. And he was so used to me rejecting him that he said, oh, okay, I'm going to hang up now then. <laughs> and he did. Oh. oh. And I immediately called him back, and I said, because I'd had all that long drive to think about this, that I really wanted to get to know him. And I called him back, and I said, would you like to go to dinner? And he was so stunned, and he said, well, Yeah. <laughs> You know the part in his book where he meets the woman, or he he invites the woman to meet him at the Ice House restaurant. Yeah, and she doesn't show. Yeah, well, our first date was. Spoiler alert! Sorry. <laughs> our first date was at the Ice House restaurant, so that's a sweet little thing for me in his book that he put that in there. Um, how that for how that first date go? Honestly, within like three minutes, I'm sitting there. And I just said to myself, you know what, Anne, this is not the man that Cynthia has been describing, <laughs> you know. I, I just could see it because I was scrutinizing him, you know, and I I just thought, actually, this man is pretty amazingly wonderful, you know. So I guess we we had a great time. And actually, that was like we were together for the next 20 years. It's a lot of wine from that night. Pretty much. Uh, uh, that was in you got you got together that night and stayed together till the day you die. Then, huh? That's right. Yeah, uh, isn't that something? And when I look back on that, I, he said to me once, "One uh, during that summer when I was rejecting him, Cynthia and I actually gave a party together, and the theme was we were going to show old Ronald Reagan movies. He was." Ronald Reagan was president at that point in 1983. And it was a great party, actually. And I had this machine that I had hauled all the way from California that was a very super-duper um, video machine. And um, that's what we showed the Ronald Reagan movies on. And um, So you and his ex threw a, part, a Reagan viewing party before you guys got together? Or after yeah, you got yeah. together. Yeah. So he and Cynthia all that summer are these sort of an ex-couple that they would sort of be seen together at various functions, like my birthday party, right? Oh, she, so she came to your birthday party with him as he's walking up to the uh, field? Right. So she came with him to the birthday party. And the, my friend Gail and I often talk about this. After the birthday party, Gail and I are talking as one does after a party, you know, you're sort of talking about everybody who was there and mm-hmm. and we're both saying, Gosh, that guy Andy is pretty wonderful and he's really not at all like Cynthia described him and then we were saying to each other, Why do you think they came together if she hates him so much? <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty funny, crazy situation. And um, during the summer that I kept rejecting him, he came to this Ronald Reagan party as a, like a friend of Cynthia's. And when the party was over, I left my big VHS recording machine there at her house. And I got a phone call from him the next day saying, I went home with your recording machine so you can come over here to pick it up. And years later, when we were married, I reminded him about that. And he he said, yeah, I did that because I wanted to capture you. Sweet. That was his excuse to call you and see you again. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so it's a very romantic history, and in my case, it's just amazing how it's it's just an incredibly wonderful memory that he he really went after me. It's really a wonderful feeling, you know. Was he still with Cynthia when you guys got together when you went on that first date? Before. Before my birthday party, right about the week I arrived in Vermont, he had moved out of her house. So they were clearly split up. And I think what I put together in my mind, it took me a while to understand this. Um, I think Andy was a really nice person and he was really polite to everybody. And I think to try to not hurt her feelings, he kind of said to her, well, we can still be friends. But in her mind, she thought that meant that they might get back together. Until you came along. And then I came along, and she let me know one day that I had really turned the knife in her. And I was really confused by her saying that, because I, 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 I thought she knew they had broken up. It was pretty obvious. Did you remind her of what she had said in that that group when you first heard about Andy? Yeah, you know, I started to. I tried to, but uh, we weren't on the same page at all. And actually, when I got that phone call from her, he had invited me to move in with him. Um, he was building a house at that point, and he had invited me to move in with him, and he told her about it. So we both knew there was no patching it up, really. It was like her friendship with me was over and her attempt to get him back was over. And, and that was that. Um, yeah, I, I, move it on. I was the lucky winner. <laughs> did you move in with him shortly after that first date or did you, was there a courtship? Yeah. Um, we, our first date was on Halloween night, actually. So there were all these people running around like a Fellini movie in the background, you know, um, were you guys in costume? We were not. I remember Andy was wearing a red beret, so he was sort of in costume. <laughs> um, and he came to our date, by the way, holding a uh, book by Aristotle that he had just gone to the UVM library to check out. And my first thought when he sits down in this red beret holding this book by Aristotle... He's trying to press you. He was trying to impress me. But you know what? He wasn't. That was just Andy. Um, there are parts of this Einstein book, by the way, that mimic some of Aristotle's work. You know the chapter where he's 
I think it's the chapter where he's teaching the students and he's wearing a wolf mask. Yep, yep. And is that chapter, that's called Class, is the title of the chapter. Um, and, yeah, and one of the students on page 73 that it says, Dr. Simmons, what's with the wolf mask? Well, Aristotle used to do that. And the reason that day he had gone to get this book by Aristotle is because he was already preparing to write Einstein. And that was a little piece of research he was doing. You know, and wow. that's a that's a a really great description to describe Andy because Andy was really, I think I don't know what his IQ was, but I think he had a genius IQ. He had such an incredible imaginary world going on in his brain. He really didn't very much need other stimulation. He didn't need, he wasn't addicted to TV or alcohol or drugs or other people. He he had such a stimulating life going on in his own brain. And that was just typical of him, like, oh, I think I better check out the Aristotle book so I'm, so I'm telling the story correctly, you know, something like that. Yeah, and but if you got if you have a learning disability, that's even I mean it's hard enough to get through Aristotle, but you throw in a in a in a it was hard yeah. for him to read, right? Isn't that wild? Um, and what I'm thinking, I'm, I think it's probably the case. I'll bet you when he went to Temple University, and as I said in my piece about the author in the book. Um, Temple allowed him to design his own major and to pick all his own courses. So he, he interviewed all the professors, and he only took courses where they told him that they would describe the books in the class so that to pass the exam, he actually wouldn't need to read them. He just had to be a, he just had to be a master listener. Where that book was gone over and over and over in class, he, he may have never even read it, you know? Wow. Yeah. Um, Andy, what I used to literally think about him is in terms of the laying on of hands. That's how I felt about him with books. It was like he would just walk around with them, and it, he could lay his hands on them, so to speak, and come up with the juice in them. He's and learning the through osmosis. Him and his reading disability is. He, what he did read were scientific manuals. Like he loved reading computer manuals. Or like car manuals. Because they were like diagrams, I guess, you know? Yeah. Like he could pick out that reading novels was something he just would never do. Ever. Mm. Um, it was just too painful. Yeah. Instead, he chose to write one. <laughs> yeah. Put it mildly. So, what was um, what was your twenty twenty one years like? Were you guys obviously you're in love, but was it a was it a rocky relationship? Was it what what, what was the tenor of the you of know, your twenty one um, years? I would say that 
the basis of our 21 years together was we were totally in love with each other. That was always a basis that sort of never even got questioned. But we did have communication problems that um, I would say they, they had to do, in my opinion, with both of us were raised by very difficult, dysfunctional family groups. And in dysfunctional family groups, one of the main features is that nobody really communicates well, right? Um, and Andy and I didn't really, either one of us, we didn't really have the couple skill of communicating well. And at, that was not a problem so much in the beginning, but at the end of our 20 years, it became more and more of a problem. Was it a case of you guys internalizing things, or he internalized and you you were more vocal? Because um, that that's the, that seems to be a case with in a lot of couples who are yeah flat. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of men do this thing that I call the silent treatment. You know what I'm talking about? They, oh, yeah. They, I've been accused yeah. of that myself. Okay. So that's what our problem was, basically, is that if there was something wrong, and it could be a, a problem with money, or it could have been something I said that offended him, or who knows what, you know, but if something was wrong, he didn't have the skill to say, I need to talk about this. He would give me the silent treatment which would make me crazy. <laughs> and then, yeah. Yeah, and then I would combat that by trying to pull it out of him, and he would get more and more resistant. So it was that sort of a problem. And um, where that all went is that 20 years go by, and we changed our lifestyle. We went overseas in 1995, and became international teachers. So we were living in Saudi Arabia and Indonesia, both Muslim countries. So you can imagine there were a lot of external pressures on the relationship at that point. What made you guys want to do that? Yeah, that was totally Andy in that I had lived in Indonesia with my first husband, and I loved that life of international travel. And I kind of, I always wanted Andy to want that, but I made a decision in my head that I wasn't going to push it, that I would let him get there on his own. And um, what happened is I got really comfortable living in Vermont, and he totally surprised me one day. Um, gosh, let's see, so we got together in 83, and in 1994, Five Christmas of 94-95, the end of December 1994, he came to me after a lot of thought, you know, and he said, I think we need to go become international teachers. <laughs> um, and the reason he'd come up with this idea is because he was really worried that we weren't saving enough money for retirement because, you know, in Vermont, salaries are way lower than many, many other places in the country. 
Um, and we weren't saving any money. We were living really comfortably. I was a lawyer. I was making $32,000 a year as a lawyer, and he was a teacher in Stowe at that point making 50000 He in his he, he analyzed everything in life. It was just his scientific way, and he kind of put two and two together, and he said, we're going to live in poverty as old people if we don't figure out a way to make more money is basically what he said. And um, we had had a friend who had gone into the international teaching business. He he was a person that taught with Andy at Craft Ferry. So we, he, we knew the formula. We knew how to get into that world, and we knew how huge the salaries were for international teachers. And you can save like a hundred thousand dollars a year in that life, actually, wow. and uh, especially as a couple. So I said to him, um, "Okay, uh, I will go at night and get my teaching credential, and if I think it feels good and I want to do it, then yeah, we'll go for it." And very quickly in getting this teaching credential, I decided I liked it and it sounded exciting and fun and blah, blah, blah. So within a year, we got these jobs in Saudi Arabia and we did save an enormous amount of money. We, we worked two years in Saudi Arabia and then we worked six years in Indonesia before he got sick. He died six months after getting diagnosed, so it was very fast the, whole, the way the whole thing happened. And I've since discovered that leukemia is like that. Leukemia can sneak right up on you. Because Andy was the girls' basketball coach in Indonesia, as he was in, in Craftsbury. And uh, he was very healthy. He didn't drink too much. He maybe had one beer a night. You know, he didn't smoke. He's a really healthy guy. He ate pretty well. And um, that leukemia can be like that, apparently. It just comes out of nowhere. But to get to the point about us arguing is um, the last year of his life, his temperament changed. And he got very short-tempered. And this whole – and my personal feeling is, is that the cancer had entered his brain and – it was also affecting his muscles and his athletic life. So he was kind of aware that something was terribly wrong, but he wasn't sharing that with me. And um, he kind of did this thing where he decided that all his problems had something to do with me. <laughs> and we started, yeah, it was, it was just really confusing and awful, and we would get in arguments. and. They would be very semantic arguments where I wouldn't even know what we were arguing about. Um, and I went to a therapist and figured out, like, he and I really needed to learn how to communicate. And we were just on the point of agreeing to do that when he collapsed and was medevaced out of Jakarta and... Six months later, he was gone. Really oh, terrible. Oh but God. that six months in the hospital, though, we had some really beautiful moments where we we had the time in those six months to 
to figure out what, you know, our marriage is pretty fabulous all in all. And the, the minor, I would call them really minor problems. And now that I've, you know, I've been around as a single person the last decade and I look at people's marriages and I realize I have something very few people have, basically. Yeah. Um, because basically we really, really, we were like Siamese twins in many respects, and we we were soulmates. I'd say we were truly soulmates. Um, so what now? How was that for? How, how did he react to the diagnosis? And then how? What was your reaction to that? Did what? Did he give? The, was it a terminal thing from from the beginning? Okay, you know it was a typical Andy story in that. Um. Andy had a mind like radar, okay? I think you kind of know what I mean from reading this book. Andy had the ability to really look at an issue and figure it out. <laughs> you know, he's a really good scientific brainy guy. And um, when he was told within one week that he had leukemia, he went online and did all this research about it. And he figured out, he told me this, thank God, I mean, I'm glad he did, like, you know, six days into this whole horrible experience where we got medevaced out of Jakarta and he's put in a leukemia ward in Philadelphia, um, that all happened in six days, and it was Christmas Day that he entered the hospital in Philadelphia, of all things. Um so they kind of stabilized him. They started him immediately on chemo. He's doing all this research. And we're alone in this hospital room one day, and he says to me, you know, and we need to talk about hospice. Can you imagine how shocking that is? Six days after he went in the hospital, he's talking about hospice? Yeah, and this is what he So I'm, to be honest with you, Bob, I, I think I went into shock the minute he collapsed in Jakarta, and I don't know if, if when I came out of it. <laughs> so anything I tell you about this whole experience, you got to remember, I'm completely always kind of in shock. He is applying his scientific thinking always at the, to everything. So what he sa- the reason he says to me, you know, I think we need to talk about hospice for me is because he said, I have this part of my leukemia is called tetrasomy 8. And what that means is I have a form of leukemia that only 18 Americans have had before me. He figured this all out online. Yeah. The doctors were not telling him this, by the way. They were, because, you know, doctors do this. They they don't, they, they just don't want to come right out and say to you what Andy said to me. Let's put it that way. Um, so he, he said to me, um, and all 18 of these Americans, in other words, he had the most acute form of leukemia a person can get. And he said they all died within six months. And he said, I'm going to die in early June. He said that to me. And, um, and well, what I did, and I'm very proud of this, frankly, I burst into tears. And I remember, and, and my tears were 
I, as much as anything, confusion, I guess, in a way, you know, just like that was my response. He was trying to be very scientific and say, he said, you know, what he was trying to say to me is, frankly, I don't think there's anything that medicine can do for me. And let's talk about hospice. And when I burst into tears, he looked at me with almost like resignation. It was kind of sad, too. Like, he realized he couldn't actually do what he wanted to do. And later on, maybe four or five months into this whole thing, when he, they had officially told him he was dying, you know, like, okay, they, there finally came a day when they said, you're dying and there's nothing we can do about it. And that was, and mm-hmm. when they told him that, by the way, it was only two weeks before he died on June the 5th. So when that finally... But he knew, he knew right away, though. He, they, he it took him six weeks to tell him, but he knew. He knew, and... When they finally told him, and he and I were talking about that, he said, you know, and I didn't have any choice but to go through all that horrible stuff. I, and it was, to me, like a crucifixion, all the, the chemo and the after effects. And the, he had many surgeries during that time, too. The whole thing was like a nightmare. And he said to me, I had to do that because everybody would have thought I was committing suicide if I didn't do it. And so when when I burst into tears, I think what he was saying in his mind is, oh, God, she she's not going to go for it. <laughs> I have to go through this. And I'm, I'm only laughing about it because I'm grateful that he hung on for six months because... It was a fabulous time for us in, in this ma- in this way that we we communicated and we got to say everything we wanted to say to each other, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man! So how how crazy that you were on the verge of of starting therapy that where you were you were going to work it out, and then this whole thing sounds like it accelerated the whole process. Exactly, and and then that's why. I wrote the memoir that I wrote, which you've recently seen, because when he died, I was just kind of left standing there like, what the hell happened here? You know, and I was so primed and so ready to have a marriage where we were really getting intimate and communicating, and he just disappeared on me. It's horrible. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And you and you guys had picked up and left Vermont to make some money to prepare for growing old together, and that yeah, doesn't we were, even, that doesn't even happen. There you go. That's right. And we even he had even picked out the house in Florida where he wanted to retire, and I was just going along with that. As a Californian, I had no desire to be in Florida, but he it made him so happy. And here's the point I really want to make about this. It all had to do with writing, by the way. Everything I've been talking about for the last half an hour had to do with his desire to be a writer. So what he never really said to me, but what I've put together over time is he wanted an early retirement so he could get back to writing. So he wanted to make a lot of money for retirement so he could retire. He wanted to retire at age 51, and he died at 51 instead. 
He actually said, I want to retire at 51. Yeah, he started this plan with me. He didn't talk about, I'm doing this because I want to be a writer, but I've since figured out that's really what he was doing. Because, um, as you know, he wrote another five books, and he was writing all this time. But he really wanted to be done with teaching because it drained him. It took every ounce. He, he really threw himself into it. He was a fabulous teacher, and everybody loved him. But it was draining. And he wanted he would get up at 5 in the morning and write until... 6.30, have breakfast, and go to school. And he did that for 10 years. Um, yeah. And um, so, yeah, he wanted to set up a life for both of us where I would do whatever I wanted and he would be a writer. Uh, yeah. And But the beauty of it is he was a writer. Yeah. <laughs> he, got, he got it done. Before he died. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. God for that. Thank God for that. Well, if there is an afterlife or whatever, wherever that energy goes to, um, it would be nice to know, find out one day that he knows what's going on here. And I'm looking at his book right here, and I loved it. I've read it three or four times. So. Yeah, Bob, I wanted to make a comment about that. And that is, you belong to a really exclusive club. You know, there's only like five people who have read this book more than once and they've done it because they love it so much. And and that's not because only five people would love this book, but only five people have seen the book to be able to do that. So those people are Todd Lockwood, um, Tom Jevelin from the Christian Science Monitor, um, you... Me. Who else? Oh, Stephen Gimbel, the professor from um, Gettysburg College. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he's read it more than once, but he definitely read it once and, and he read thoroughly it enjoyed it. To, um, to say, you know, it's pretty amazing this book, and he and I love that he 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 noticed, you know, he made the comment that. The person that wrote this book had to be very gifted intellectually. You know, he saw that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, other than those people we've just named, um, very few people have seen this book. Well, let's get it out. Let's change that. Let's get it out in the world. Get it out there. Yeah. Well, maybe we can revisit. Here's what I like to do. We're, we're at like an hour and a half right now. And and I think that, uh, and we didn't even get into <laughs> Andy's upbringing and, and all that stuff. And right. we can do that at a, we can do that at another time. Um, and also, I would love to entice people to read your, um, about the author, because that is a, so beautifully written. And you really can kind of tell the tale that we didn't, fully explore here of what he went through growing up and, and the fact that yeah. he was even able to write a book of, you know, such clear, um, smarts. He had some smarts and he was clever and brilliant and funny and, and had a lot to say. And the fact that this is kind of a window into who he was after hearing his story is, is what, uh, is what makes the book work I, I for really, me. 
I've got so many more stories, and a couple of just came into my mind about him and Todd. So we have to do this again. Yeah, we'll pick this up, and I want to hear about that boat story of you, of him saying, this is the boat we're going to get when we retire. Oh, and exactly. Yeah. We'll pick this up. Maybe we should leave the audience wanting more and wanting to read this book, and, and we'll, do, um, we'll do round two of, of you and I chatting here. What do you think? Wonderful. Wonderful. I think you're right. I'm a little exhausted, and it's been great, and I look forward to doing it again. All Thank right, you well, so much, Bob. Thank you, and I will um, let you know when I've got this thing edited and posted, and um, we'll see what happens. And um, next week, we'll we'll be sending out some of these emails and sending out the books, and uh, it's going to be appearing in the New York Review of Books, and yeah, in next month, exciting. and it's going to be in that catalog through Ingram Spark too. So that's going to go to a whole bunch of people. So between those things and and these physics people and and uh, hopefully yeah. we can get some publicity for it and and we'll see what Todd and and Tom Devlin have to say exactly wonderful all right good work okay thank you thanks for sharing all that stuff and uh and I hope it didn't bum you out too much no it's it's really wonderful to be able to talk about Andy really is well, okay well, it's, it's great to to hear all about him too so we'll we'll revisit this soon good okay have a lovely weekend okay you too annie talk to you later okay that's our podcast thanks for listening thanks to our guest annie moore check out the book it's called einstein doesn't throw dice written by annie's late husband andy colomeco andrew john colomeco you can get the book on amazon.com or better yet go to bobtomysticbooks.com and if you can't figure out how to spell bobtomystic just go to Optimistic Books and that will get you there. I'm Bob Mackler. This is my podcast. Come on back next week for more of Two Degrees of Bob. Thanks for listening, y'all.